there are some streams and patterns and uh, common struggles that some of the students were having that as I was just so privileged to be able to talk to them, I began seeing the traps, the common traps that these students were falling into that paralyze and deter and hinder spiritual growth. And I just, based on these conversations, just kind of listed them out. Before we get there, would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? 2 Peter chapter 1. This was a conversation I had with a a young lady this week uh, who was not a part of our church, but it was very encouraging just to see her desire to want to make things aligned and make things right in her heart and in her life. Um, If you've been to a church camp before, you know that it can be a lot of fun and can be exhausting, but one of the things that it is more than anything is an opportunity to kind of push distractions away and give specific focus and attention to your life in a way that you don't normally do and at an intensity that you're not normally applying to your own um, growth, position before the Lord, position uh, in, with sins that you're dealing with. And it's actually something that happens with, with me and with Kim being away for a week. You, you just kind of pause Truth is, it's, it's akin to a Sabbath rest. I think a camp is really, really a cousin to what God had in mind on the Sabbath, which is to stop, pause, reflect, refocus, recalibrate. And I wonder how many times we actually do that. Looking back at this week and the opportunities I had talking to students and thinking of my own life, and how many opportunities we take to stop and think to evaluate our hearts, to evaluate our lives. Can I say this? To actually grade. To, to, how are we doing in these areas? How am, I, how am I growing? Now, I know we use the Lord's table to do that uh, week in and week out. But do you really take the time? And I'm asking, convicting myself when I say this. Do you take regular time to stop and do inventory and, and evaluate? Life is moving so much Faster, it seems to me, every single day, every single week of my life. And to stop and to say, what's going on? That's what we did at camp this week, and I was moved by that. Now, I want to read a passage to you, and then kind of reverse engineer and show you why that's important. Peter, in his second letter, says, Grace and peace, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, few comments are in order as we go along. Grace and peace are demonstrated. They flow from God. They're grasped by the soul. This is important. In the knowledge of God and in Jesus our Lord. In other words, knowing what God is like and knowing who God is and knowing who Jesus is, what he's done, what he said, what, he's, what he is for us now, what he was for us on the cross, that multiplies grace and peace in our lives. Then he doubles down in verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, that's general living, and godliness, that's the goal of the Christian. I mean, that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? We come back to the same issue. 
through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In, in other words, growth in Christianity is always growth in theology. And by that I mean theology proper, the study of God himself. Some premarital couples that, that my wife and I uh, have the privilege of shepherding during their time of premarital are often surprised when we encourage them to read a book together. And it's, they say, okay, this is going to be how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife. And, and it's usually knowing God, knowledge of the holy, systematic theology by Wayne Grudem, something about God. And there's a method to that. The more we understand and know God, the more everything in life comes into focus. We're granted everything pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of God and of Jesus. I mean, this, this preaches in the fourth grade Sunday school class, doesn't it? But it's also incredibly seismic in our own souls. And then this passage, this linked chains, as, as you know, and if you know Second Peter at all, verse four, for by these... He's granted to us his precious promises, magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He's saying, know who God is, know what God said, know what God's promised, and you'll become a partaker, an enjoyer of God's actual nature, having escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world, the corruption that is in the world, rather, by lust. In other words, the... the, and you'll see why this is on my heart from talking to so many students this week. When you find yourself captured and tripped up and stumbling by the lusts of the world, the solution that Peter offers is escaping those by being a partaker of God's divine nature by the pathway of knowing God, what he's like and what he's done and the promises he's made. Now, for this reason, he gives these, this daisy chain here. Uh, applying all diligence, that's your effort, in your faith, supply moral excellence. Be holy, be godly. In your moral excellence, supply knowledge. Know why you're doing what you're doing. In your knowledge, self-control. Making decisions about your life and your thinking and yourself that are under your will and your deliberation rather than our lusts. In your self-control, perseverance, we stick with it. In your perseverance, godliness, we actually become like God. In your godliness, brotherly kindness, it has an impact on the people around us. In your brotherly kindness, love, and love is the top shelf of all Christian virtue as we've studied in Romans. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, I love that, you're growing in them, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're pursuing anyway. If that's the goal and we're pursuing that, then we're not rendered useless or unfruitful if we're pursuing these steps and this, this daisy chain that leads to the knowledge of God. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. This is incredible. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, this is interesting to me. We are a church that believes that God calls and woos and has foreknowledge and predestines. Do you see a possible logical conflict here? 
Be certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never, never stumble. In other words, the way a person knows they've been chosen by God is they persevere and pursue Christ. For in this way, the entrance into, uh, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You'll have peace and assurance. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. You know what? You know what that implies? We forget these things and need to be reminded. He goes on, even though you've already know them, have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, as long as Paul is, uh, Peter rather is on this planet, to stir you up by way of reminder. Twice he says, I remind you, I remind you, I'm gonna stir you up by reminding you, knowing that the laying aside of the earthly dwelling is imminent, we're gonna die someday, and also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me about his own death. And I will also be diligent that at that time, after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter is actually saying, I want to have a spiritual influence on you so that when I'm gone, for him is permanently gone, dead gone, you're going to have a pathway. You're going to be independently dependent on Christ. You understand that term? We all want to be dependent on Christ, but we don't want to be dependent on Christ as we're dependent on someone else. We're independently dependent on Christ. I was telling the students this, this last week that God has no grandchildren, only children, only those who have a direct link to him. Well, this was a passage I was able to share with this one young lady who was struggling and and it was interesting just to watch her say, oh, I get that. It was just really refreshing for me. And it caused me to kind of pull back and say, what are the traps that so many students were talking about with each other and small groups and even with me for paralyzed, that paralyzed spiritual growth? So I jotted down seven. I think these would be interesting things for you to talk about with your spouse, interesting things to talk about in your care group, maybe even on your way home. Seven traps that paralyze spiritual growth. These are not par uh, paralyzing traps with which I am only familiar with from counseling. <laughs> These are things I am very aware of in my own life. So this is more me bleeding on you and just thinking with you than outright preaching at you. Seven traps that paralyze spiritual growth. For this first one, I want you to turn over to Psalm 50. These will all be different texts. Psalm 50. The first trap is this. We humanize God. Number one, we humanize God. Asaph has written this psalm and he is talking about the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Climax is in verse 21. He summarizes these things you have done and I kept in my silence their sin. And then he says this at the end of verse um, 20, excuse me, verse 21. You thought I was what? Just like you. You thought I was like you. And 
talking to some students this week, hearing them talk about God, it was like they were talking about a dysfunctional friend, sometimes an evil friend, sometimes an unfaithful friend, sometimes a friend who reminded you of a giant 10-foot coiled cobra, sometimes a friend who would remind you of a senile old grandfather. We humanize God. We, without biblical correction, it's easy to think God is like us. And that's a trap that will paralyze your growth. Going back to what Peter was saying, I want you to see the connection here. We grow by the pure and undefiled knowledge of God that comes to us in Scripture, right? And our knowledge of God is always corrected as we put and keep our minds in his book. One of the reasons that we need to read our Bibles often, daily, multiple times a day, is because unless we let God correct our view of him, we will always tend to humanize him and project onto him characteristics that that really are true of us. A second trap that paralyzes spiritual growth is forgetting the gospel. Galatians chapter one. Go over to Galatians for a moment. I'll have you flipping around in your Bibles tonight. This Galatians is, is hard to read if you if you if you understand the context. The gospel had been given to the this city, this church in modern-day Turkey. And he says, I'm amazed, chapter 1, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him. It's interesting he personalizes it to Christ. Deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. For a different gospel. And he goes on to say, even if an angel preaches to you a different gospel than then was delivered to you, you should not believe that. What is a different gospel? Here's the danger in so many students' lives that I I had opportunity to talk about this week with in conversations, and, and frankly, it's a danger for you and me, is that we can forget the true gospel. You say, what do you mean by that? You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? Scripture informs us of that. How easy is it for you to begin thinking like this? Well, I didn't have my quiet time this morning, so I am probably in a bad standing with God. I'm going to come back to that here in number five. You begin thinking, I begin thinking, we can easily default into thinking, well, God, God loves me based on A, B, or C, but I have D, E, or, or F. Paul warns, he also warns the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beware if you begin hearing or believing a different gospel than the simple, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, John 3, 16, by grace you've been saved through faith, it's not of yourself, it's very simple. And not to allow voices, as the Galatians had, to come and begin telling them things that were not true. Now, here's what's interesting. You know what voice was telling them wrong notions of the gospel in Galatia? 
If you read ahead, you know what voice was telling them? Peter. And Paul had to oppose him to his face because he was beginning to retrofit the gospel with Judaistic leanings and was corrected. A third paralyzing point, a trap that can paralyze our spiritual growth is undervaluing the Bible. Undervaluing the Bible. I think most people who have a Bible have some value attached to it. But in Psalm 119, with which most of you are familiar, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, all about the Word of God. There's something really important that's easy to miss in Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And then verse 11, your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. But don't miss what's in between those in verse 10, which says, with all my heart, I sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Do we really understand what Hebrews says, that this is a living and active book, able to divide bone and marrow? Do, do you value the fact that this is the living and active word, message, instruction manual from, from God? I think we have so much access to God's word, it's easy to forget that. I have multiple copies on my, my phone, my iPad, more copies in my, my personal library than I can count. How do we know if we're undervaluing the Bible? Very simple, by asking what we do with it. <laughs> I was explaining to the students this last week, I've never talked to a young man who is struggling with pornography or a young woman who is struggling with envy and jealousy or bickering or fighting with their friends or a couple who was having struggles in their marriage and at the same time they said I am having the best most profitable daily times in the word I've ever had they're, they're incongruent do we really value the Bible that with all my heart I've sought you therefore I won't wonder from what you've said this is a supernatural this is not like Dickens or any British author, American author, Chinese. This is, this is God's word. Number four, a fourth trap. Believing your feelings. <laughs> Believing your feelings. We studied it for how many weeks? Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to this plan is purpose. What's the first part of that text say? And we what? Feel? And we what? We know. If we believe our feelings, we're going to be in serious soup and on thin ice. Just talking to a couple of students this week who say, I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like my parents love me. I don't feel like my coach believes me. I don't feel... I don't. And they're probably right in their feelings but when we apply our feelings to theology and determine truth based on whether we feel it or not we can get in serious serious trouble our feelings aren't always liars but that's what makes them so dangerous is that they are sometimes and sometimes they aren't learn to mistrust your feelings unless they're supported by biblical truth 
this goes back to what we were saying a minute ago. Number five, a fifth trap that paralyzes your spiritual growth. Trusting your performance. Trusting your performance. Now, now for this, I want to just go back to Galatians for a moment. The Galatians had begun, as I said, retrofitting their faith in Christ with their Judaistic superstitions and acquaintance with the law and their effort to try to honor God by obeying different nuances of the law that were in the Bible and some that even weren't, were added later. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now being finished, you're being perfected by the flesh? In other words, are you trusting that your performance can add one thing to grace? I know what James says, faith without works is dead. Works are the fruit of faith, not the engine of faith. Be careful trusting your performance. Again, uh, Jerry Bridges, I'm not sure I gave the Jerry Bridges book too, but he says, (laughs) we need to remember that on our best days, we're never beyond the need of God's grace. And on our worst days, we're never beyond the reach of God's grace. Be careful trusting your performance. Now, you gotta be careful. Remember what Paul says after five chapters of talking about God's grace in Romans chapter six? What shall we say? To sin so grace will abound. May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? But still, we have to be careful whether we're looking to please God in our acceptance with him, in our salvific sense with him, by our performance. Whoever makes that cut? No one. Now, once we realize that we don't, and it's all grace, and it's all by faith, and it's all God, that then motivates us to obey and to have our performance or our works out of love, not out of manipulation. Just two more. And again, these were from conversations I had with with kids this week. A sixth danger is this trap, misplacing your guilt. Misplacing one's guilt. We all know what guilt is like. We've all experienced guilt. We've all felt guilt. We've all felt righteous or rightful guilt. But we've probably also experienced wrong guilt. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, you know this, you probably memorized it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Of course we're going to sin. If the idea is I'm going to live in such a way that I will be guilt-free and guiltless, then we don't need the gospel. Misplacing our guilt underscores, undermines rather, the guilt that Jesus took for us on the cross. We sing so many songs, he took my guilt and shame, right? Yes, we are rightfully guilty, but we have to remember if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to do what? Forgive them and to cleanse us of how much unrighteousness? How much? All unrighteousness. 
And the last one, and this is one that you gotta be really careful about. Number seven, minimizing your sin. Minimizing your sin. Now, I don't mean that in maybe the way you would take it at first. What I mean is we, we, we can minimize it by forgetting what it cost to pay for it. Isaiah 53, you know the passage. It pleased God to crush his son for the payment of guilt and sin. And we, we can minimize our sin by forgetting the cost it took to pay for the sin, which then allows us a, a free invitation to enjoy it and participate in it without any conscience. We should never minimize our sin when we remember that it was so heinous and so serious, it required the death of God's son in order to make it covered, paid for, and gone away. Now, why the list? Why the circling the wagons and kind of just having a family talk tonight? In the multiple conversations I had with young men and young women at our youth camp this week, it's so encouraging to to hear people just pour their lives out with each other, with their pastor, with their small group leaders, with, with Adam, with Alyssa. Hearing some of these themes, it reminded me to ask the question, have you and I really grown beyond these traps? Are these just youth traps? Are these just the things that high schoolers and junior hires deal with? Or are these traps that you can, you can see have been laid. Let me ask it another way. Have you felt the claws, the claw of this trap snap around your ankles, any of these before? Boy, I have, even today. We have to remember our obedience can never, ever pay enough to earn our forgiveness. When we're sorry about our sins, that can never, ever atone and provide enough penance to cover them. No matter how much we cry, no matter how many tears we shed, we will never deal with our sin in an appropriate way. No matter how much we inflict our, our self-punishment or self-condemnation, it will never make us right before God. Listen to this, even our death will not make our sin go away. And the wages of sin is death. All these traps point back to what we're singing, the, the grace of God, that we have a Savior who has looked with kindness and mercy and grace on those who believe. Actually, mercy and grace are extended to those who have a heartbeat and have yet to meet him in judgment. Humanizing God, forgetting the gospel, undervaluing the Bible, believing your feelings, trusting your performance, misplacing your guilt, and minimizing your sin. Isn't it a shame that the junior and senior hires struggle with these things so badly and we've grown beyond them? Of course we haven't grown beyond them. So what do you do about this? What do you do about this? Let me just give you three simple ways to respond to this list. First of all, it, it sounds so trite. First of all, have we prayed about these traps? You know the Lord's Prayer, right? 
Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Earth as it is in heaven. This is their daily bread. What's the climax of that, that prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us to pray that we wouldn't fall into such traps. I'm, I'm, I am just amazed. I hope I don't disqualify myself tonight. I am amazed by how little faith I can put in prayer sometimes. You say, well, it's in God, not in prayer. I understand that, but God told us to pray. I'm amazed how easy it is not to pray and amazed what resource we have lead us not into temptation. In other words, don't let us fall into these traps. I think a second response to this list is it's embarrassing that I say it so often, but we read our Bibles more, more intently, daily. We have the resource of God's word. We have the resource of what God has said. You know, you go back 250 years or so, and if you were to explain to a, a Christian that you have multiple copies of God's word personally that you own, they might look to you and say, why would you do anything? Why do you, why do you have time to eat when you have an opportunity to read the Bible? Because they had no access like we do. And a third response is leaning on the body of Christ. These traps were not intended to be isolated and seen and avoided alone we should be mind sweeps for each other, looking out for each other. Galatians chapter six, bearing one another's burdens lest we ourselves look and are tempted and carried away by our own. We're looking after each other's back, in other words. You can't look after each other's back in an appropriate, accountable way unless we're honest and vulnerable and open with each other, which is why we have church membership, which is why we have care groups, that's why we Spend so much time trying to love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. I was pretty convicted. <clears throat> the conversations I had with, with students this week that given the opportunity to stop and to think, they asked really good questions about what trajectory and direction their soul should be pointed I just want to kind of come back and say, shouldn't we too? Shouldn't we as well? Be careful believing the lies that youthful sins are just for youth. Be careful believing the lie that you can excel beyond doubt, grow beyond frustration, grow beyond struggle. You're always going to be frustrated. We're always going to be frustrated. And if we're not frustrated, I think the enemy is one. I love that quote by John Piper where he says, when you see how troubled your heart and your soul is, take heart, embattled soul. In other words, if you're in the battle, you feel the frustrations. It's when we get complacent that makes me most afraid. Seven dangers, seven traps. Would you talk about these with each other? And then these three ways to respond. 
three avenues, and you could probably list a lot more. Talk to your students, those of you who are parents, about what they learned this week. Make your conversations, let's make our conversations redemptive that actually stir up affections about the things that are important to us and the priorities that God has given us.